0: Hey everybody, this is Mo. Um, I'm just hopping on here real quick before the episode to give you a few updates. First of which is my laptop got fixed. So we're back. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you know that there's a new episode and that is this one that you're listening to. So we've been recording. um, We've been kind of catching up. I've got some incredible guests lined up for interviews that I'm really, really excited about. So thank you for your patience. I missed you as much as you missed me, which is a presumption that you missed me, but I'm going to roll with it. Um, yes, so laptop is fixed. Second of all, I have been working to get all of our episodes transcribed and on the website for whoever needs those. So if you go to our website, parentingispolitical.org, I have the first three episodes done. I'm working... Um, behind the scenes to get the rest of them done. And then I wanted to shout out to friend of the show and friend of our family, Amy, for reaching out and volunteering to help uh, transcribe those episodes. So that really meant a lot. It's been nice to have the help. So thank you. Thank you, Amy. Also wanted to give a shout-out to all of our subscribers. What's up, y'all? Thank you so much for all of your um, donations and your regular contributions to the show. It, and part of why I could get uh, my laptop fixed was because of um, those monthly subscriptions. So if you are not a subscriber and you want to become one, you can by um, following the link in our Instagram bio, or I'm going to drop it also in the show notes um, of this show you can check out, there's a couple different levels, but, um, yeah, your subscriptions are definitely being put to good use, it really helped us get back what we needed and helped get the laptop fixed, so thank you, thank you, thank you, appreciate it. Oh, also, if you become a new subscriber, you get a handwritten letter by me with a cool panting political magnet, and, um, yeah, so that's also something to look forward to. Okay, I think that's all the announcements I'm gonna make, um... Towards the end of the show, I discovered I was bleeding. I just want to let everybody know I'm fine. I'm recording this after I realized I was bleeding, so clearly I am still here, which is great news. But yeah, it's fine. I was fine. All right, so (laughs) hope you enjoyed the episode. I will see y'all around. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Parenting is Political. Hi, hi, hi. This is Mo. This is Jasmine. And it's been a while since we did a new episode because my laptop broke, but it's back. And, and we're back. back. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was so unplanned. That really was. Um, well, like, should we do like a how have you been doing since last episode check-in? Yeah, what's up, my nigga? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, man, I've uh, just been, I don't know, doing regular life stuff. Not th- I don't feel like anything exciting has been happening on my end. What? Question mark? Just hanging out with the babies. What about mm. you? You've been traveling a bunch. I've been traveling
1: so much. I... I'm in the wild season of the nonprofit industry, which is like Q4 reporting and... <sighs> Re- reapplying for grants and budgets and all the numbers that stress me out.
0: Yeah. Lots of travel. It's bullshit. hmm Yeah. But we're back, and we're going to do this podcast. <laughs> and um, I'm excited about this one. I think it's kind of piggybacking off of the post I made um, calling in some of the white folks on our page. Oh my god. Yeah. Which was... <laughs> interesting (laughs) um but basically what we're going to be talking about this week is the right to comfort it is one of the characteristics and habits of white supremacy culture you got to get uncomfortable
1: carol yeah
0: yeah (laughs) i was trying to think of a name but then i didn't um so yeah the reason i wanted to talk about this was because um well, as I explained in the post, if you haven't seen that, it's on our Instagram and Facebook pages, um, you can go and read it, um, but basically what I was saying was that there's been a lot of engagement on our pages as far as it relates to gender or sexuality or, um, you know, just different ways of, like, reparenting yourselves, and then I'll post in the stories or on the actual pages, you know, stuff about racism and unlearning white supremacy, and it's the engagements are a lot lower um, so we were just chatting through that and I was like I think I want to make a post about it and you know I think that I already know that like white people are going to be in their feelings about it there's going to be a lot of white fragility and a lot of excuses and defensiveness um, but I just felt like I needed to do it and mm-hmm. um, part of that is disrupting that uh, like that idea that you have the right those who have the most power have the right to remain comfortable at all times um, so that's kind of our segue, that's the background and context for why I wanted to do an episode over it. Nice. Yeah. So tell the good people, right to comfort.
1: Yeah, so... It's a characteristic of white supremacy culture.
0: Yeah, it's the belief, um, that the power, that those with power have the right to emotional and psychological comfort. Um, so that's, uh really important to remember uh, that it's about power dynamics um, because if you apply this to folks who do not have power, it is not the same, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Um,
1: so I think that what's really important to unpack here, and this is really hard for a lot of people who don't consider the ways in which they have privilege because mm-hmm. they've had struggle in their life. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so when we talk about comfort, particularly within the, like, capitalist American, not American, but capitalist um, paradigm within the United States, the majority of folks who are striving financially are doing so with the hopes of obtaining comfort. Um, The idea of, you know, the American dream is that you get all these things that help you be comfortable. And so in a lot of ways, it's the, like the, it's antithetical to talk about psychological, emotional resiliency and experiencing discomfort.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So people get a lot of pushback around that. And so when we're talking about privilege, we're talking about power that was obtained at the cost of someone else.
0: Exactly. Which is super important to define that. Right. Yeah.
1: And when we're talking about right to comfort in this context, it's around the emotional excavation of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, when folks say, you know, okay, well, I don't, I want to learn how to be anti-racist, but I don't like your delivery or mm-hmm. you're mean to me, or mm-hmm. I feel bad learning all these things, or being accountable doesn't have to hurt. Why does it hurt so bad? Or, you know, the various things that people say around this conversation. Um, but but ultimately, if you are a white person or a non-black person of color, you are experiencing a level of privilege that was obtained through proximity to whiteness that was at the expense of black people. And so the idea that you should be comfortable whenever you're unpacking these things, whenever you're evaluating these things, is a problem. Mm -hmm. And this is an expanded conversation into parenting because oftentimes people who are parenting white children or non-black children of color do not want to quote-unquote compromise the young person's childhood by making them experience discomfort or pain when you teach about anti-black white supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. And so when people say, well, I just don't think being anti-racist or talking about white supremacy with my eight-year-old is appropriate because it's hard for them to understand and it's painful and it's talking about suffering and it's just like really heavy stuff. I still want them to be a child. You are electing to engage in white centered comfort, um, off of you, like your child is obtaining that privilege at the cost of black and brown children who do not get to choose to experience comfort around race race and racial um, identity within the United States.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: that's usually the main one that
0: we get, right? We get people
1: going, like, my kid's six. I don't want to teach them about police violence toward black people. Well, guess what? There are black boys who are six who have been profiled and experienced Mm -hmm. violence because of state-sanctioned violence through police threat. So when you choose to not teach your child about that reality, you're choosing to engage in white
0: privilege. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there's also, like, there's so many different levels of the privilege, which is why I wanted to call attention to it, too. Like, there's so many folks who are queer um, or part of, like, the gay community who are white, and they think that, like, the analysis stops at just, like, advocating for, like, you know gay rights or something without realizing that there's a much deeper analysis around that. And that's why I called that out specifically because there is a huge problem within the queer community, the white queer community of co-opting black culture, Mm -hmm. Mm co-opting like things that aren't ours. And Mm -hmm. not only that, but like when you're advocating, you're only advocating for like white gay rights and there's well, not this that's,
1: that's the thing though is and, and that's what neoliberalism teaches people is just advocating for that avenue of the conversation is an act of justice it's not really no no, you're just because, protecting your affinity group, which is just another form of class stratification or identity stratification that still upholds capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy, mm-hmm. right? And so if it's not a solution for all of us, it's, it's a
0: solution for none of us. Absolutely. So many of us don't get that, and, and we don't teach our kids that either. Like, I feel like in a lot of like queer families... It's it's easy or it's okay for them to talk about how things have been hard for them as gay people. That's an easy conversation, but they're not going and having that same conversation that you were just saying well, around. I, like,
1: I wouldn't. Anti-
0: I wouldn't detract from their
1: experiences and say that it's easy. That's really unfair. What's easy? That it's an easy conversation.
0: Okay. What do you mean?
1: I, I would say it might be a conversation that is a bit more familiar and, and somewhat comfortable to them, but I still think having conversations about their marginalization as queer people is still hard. Okay. It's still traumatic. Yeah, that's fair. My
0: bad. Wrong word to use. <laughs> I should have said more comfortable,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like more of a familiar, they've got a bit more of a script, and I think that it wouldn't be too much for folks to add the caveat in those conversations about like, the formation of their queer identity and navigating that socially, um, when they're talking to their kids about it, by saying, and also people of color, specifically Black people, experience far more prejudice, discrimination around, and and you know homophobia around their queerness than even white queer people.
0: Yeah, that's the point I was trying to make. <laughs> You're just, you got to it a lot quicker than I did. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So go through the right to comfort bullet. Yeah. So that was the first one. I feel like that was a really great example of being like, hey, I'm going to call you in in this instance. And I was all, okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then you just keep moving. That's it. The second bullet point is um, scapegoating those who cause discomfort. Yeah, Ooh, let's talk about that one. Yeah,
1: and so this is we talked about this a little bit around either or thinking. Yes, and how people who are not on the binary spectrum around gender or um, don't don't fall within binary on racial categories, they are it's like they're uplifted as the other, and so it's really easy to. um to like they're the catch-all for mm-hmm. oppression and social reactivity um and violence so right this is the same this is the same situation here where when people have been conditioned to believe that blackness makes them inherently discomfort um, uncomfortable and is like um a like a a discomforting experience, meaning that you've been taught that blackness is aggressive no matter what. You've been taught that it's dangerous no matter what. Just the sight of black people in context of, like, social settings creates discomfort. And so automatically that black person or the person assigned as the other gets to be the person who is held responsible for white comfort mm-hmm. or the lack of white comfort. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, and then, of course, we have Patriarchy that adds that layer of like paternalistic policing and sexist policing, and then capitalism also, if there's a disability that's wrapped into there, it, that also creates discomfort because you're not this like, you know, you're not this like ideal model of how you, know, you should function in, in your ability and your ableness. And so, all of these layers combine to sort of create blackness. And then, of course, um, radiating out from blackness other people of color as the targets of discomfort. And so oftentimes, and you see this all the time online, <laughs> online. Um, it's happened on my, it happens on my timeline so much, when a person talks about their racial experience or a, a moment where they were racialized and experienced violence, if they talk about it in a way that doesn't allow even just the white gaze or the person who did the harm to still feel comfortable. They talk about it in like an angry way or they cuss about it or whatever it was. They don't show up respectable. Mm -hmm. People will comment or engage with it based on tone policing or uh, like trying to reframe the person's experience rather than acknowledging the initial harm which is far greater than how the person is expressing the harm that they've experienced. And it's a pretty typical social paradigm that happens. Um, and, and, and yeah, that falls into the line of at all costs, even at your emotional, psychological um, well-being, you have to ensure that white people or whiteness always... Is feeling safe and held in however you confront it, mm-hmm. and you know we know that like power seeds nothing without without a demand, and oftentimes our anger and our and like the, those intense emotions that are coming through is the demand. It's the catalyst, the vehicle for demand. And so, if you can soften people's level of demand um, or righteousness and righteous indignation. Um, then you delude the the action the call to action right and then you can reinforce complicity
0: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it goes back also to that conversation we were having about like the fear of conflict where you're always told you know like you have to be nice or like polite and present these things in like a way that's not gonna offend anybody Mm -hmm. Um, so just by showing up in a space and either like calling in or calling out things is gonna like really upset people because the whole system of like white supremacy and capitalism and all those things that you were talking about is really built around this idea of controlling folks through the tone and the way they present messages. Just like you were saying, I think that's really important. Um, so yeah, that's the second point is the scapegoating um, the people. So it becomes a, more about how the message was delivered and less about the actual message, which was about how the harm happened. Right. Yeah,
1: And I mean, anytime you're trying to, anytime really you're trying to heal or integrate as a person or confront things that have been pretty pathological, Mm -hmm. whether they're, whether it's even just like interpersonally or internalized, um, it's not comfortable. Yeah. Right, like, going to a therapist, going to a healer, addressing those things requires a kind of, like, tearing apart so that it can reform into something new. Yeah. And it's like building a muscle, right? Muscles tear when you lift heavy weights. mm mm-hmm. And those micro tears heal and then they have, they create resiliency and a capacity to lift heavier things. And that's what happens to us when we're in this psychosocial development around, um, a racial analysis and praxis, that is to say a racial like understanding and a practice or how we're choosing to live. And, so much about how we, what we believe about young people is that they have to have sort of this very fairy tale, idyllic childhood. And I think that really happened as like a, like in, in, in like the public's zeitgeist around industrialization, like after, pretty much after industrialization, where, um, Because of manufacturing shifts and the development of corporations, kids were no longer like farming and a part of the workforce with young or with their families, and there was it became you know the shift became more of one parent staying home, and uh, creating sort of this culture for young kids, and our kids were less integrated into like a community where they were active participants and they were more just like shepherded by ideally like a female figurehead Mm -hmm. um that stayed home so I mean that was really like the the that movement that social movement in the United States and the way that our society changed also impacted this idea and then of course like consumerism and commercialism has done a really good job of beefing up the message around like magical childhoods um but even within that, like commercialization and marketing of, of like a nostalgic childhood, black and brown children have always been outside of that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. So it's it, this was a, this one's a really really hard one for caregivers, particularly if a child has already had some trauma or has like a disability or something that's really um, already like socially stigmatizing. Parents and caregivers want to protect their kids, and they want. Um, they want their kids to not experience struggle or too much psychological strife. But by not giving your child the full information about their peers and their um, community members really is another form of an attempt at colorblindness, which we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And it also completely detracts from the truth of who they are as people, that, that, like, young people can handle these conversations. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm not one of those advocates who says you need to go and give the graphic details of Trayvon Martin's murder. Yeah, No, no. But to say that someone, you know, there are developmentally appropriate ways, just like having conversations about sex or anything else, Mm -hmm. that you can introduce into the conversation with your young people. Mm -hmm. And the younger that you start, the more you orient them to a curiosity around the ways in which we have institutional, interpersonal, and internalized white supremacy that they are responsible for as they participate in those institutions, as they build interpersonal relationships with other people, and as they develop a, a, a identity of self.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they we're so hesitant to this idea because, I mean, like, biologically, we're, like, we want to be comfortable. <laughs> like, we want our kids to have that, like, that that nurturing, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean we're wired to learn how to avoid pain. Yeah,
1: for sure. But we're also wired toward community, empathy, and mm-hmm. collective, and like collectivity, and like a communal um, care practice. Yeah. And so, because we're wired in that way, we can use those those things, those impulses, to protect one another through information mm-hmm. and through learning.
0: Yeah, I think whenever, um, I think this one was a big one for me to have to unlearn. I think so much of my life was about comfort and was catered to in a lot of different ways. And My, my parents never really talked to me about things that were um, having to do about anything, really. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, I, I never had to think things that about things that were uncomfortable if I didn't want to. Um, and so I think for so long I was afraid of that that pain of growth. Yeah. that discomfort of it, and I didn't... I was resistant to it for a really long time because it hurt. Like, right. like that tearing apart and that opening and realizing that, like, even if I wasn't intentionally harming somebody, like, I still was because I, I didn't have that analysis. And the way that I was moving through the world, and every time that I, I power-grabbed or demanded my comfort over somebody else, I was taking that from somebody.
1: Yeah. And I think, too... People do not want to come to terms with myths that they internalize that were a result of white supremacy because so much of these things are connected to the core of their identity. Yeah. And so the question is, in the absence of this thing these things, who am I? And will I like that version of myself? Or will I even like how do I how do I build? Yeah. And at the end of the day, like your political analysis, um, is going to shape who you are as a person and transform you. And it's worth a discomfort. And also, you can't take it too personally, right? Like, you were born into a society where there is structural and systemic white supremacy. That wasn't your fault. No. And you have interpersonal habits that were informed by capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy. And that's not your fault. And you've internalized ideas about yourself, as it relates to white supremacy, capitalism, and uh, patriarchy. And that's not your fault. What is your fault is after the moment you realize these um, systems of oppression are at play and they're operating in your institutions, in your interpersonal relationships, and internalized within yourself, and you don't do anything about it because it's uncomfortable, number one, you're being a punk. Number Number two, that's violence.
0: It is, yeah. And it, it's like so much of this becomes about that white fragility, that white anxiety, that like over personalization and over individualism of it, and less about like this collective community healing and progress towards like a more equitable. Right.
1: And anytime society. I do, well, anytime I do like workshops or meet with folks for facilitation around particularly anti black white supremacy, the first thing that I say is like we're all guilty in this room. Mm -hmm. Let's start from that, that we're all complicit, we're all guilty, we all have internalized anti-blackness within us, we all have externalized anti-blackness that we have engaged in as a product of living in this society. Period. Yeah, and there are people who legit want to like argue with me, like I've never. Or they'll be like, "Well, I'm a dark skinned black person. I can't be anti black." And I was like, "Bet you can." Here we go. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's have this conversation. Or a white person is like, "Well, but all right." And so it's not about black people looking at white people and be like oh you're anti-black legit all of us are all of us across whatever race and ethnicity we find ourselves situated we have internalized that stuff we have we externalize it we uphold the systems and engage in it and the only way for us to start agitating and creating new systems that are that are oriented toward justice is by acknowledging those three eyes that i said the institutions that we participate and why, how they're built in in white supremacy, um, the inter- interpersonal relationships and the internalized personal beliefs that we have. You can't change something that you don't know you even have.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. You don't know it until you know it. You don't know what you don't
1: know. You know. And then, and then, my favorite <laughs> phrase that my best friend Danielle got me on a mug is, "Then you have to forgive yourself for." not knowing what you didn't know until you knew it, right? Like, it's... That's what I
0: drank my coffee out of this morning. Oh, how apropos. I know. It's like I knew. I didn't know.
1: So, so yeah, that is... Yeah. And the third layer of this is when folks have this really obnoxious response. Tell us. Which is is putting their discomfort around learning about racial violence or some sort of oppressive thing. On the same equal playing field as the person experiencing the oppression Mm -hmm. like it makes my name is Carol and um, my feelings were hurt the other day because my friend Jasmine she said that like she was racially profiled and I said well like maybe you weren't and then she said well like why are you doubting my experiences that really is offensive and hurtful but like it hurt me that she was, like, knobbly,
0: right? Like, that's, yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like Carol? Yeah, it was a nice white lady voice. Uh, so so you talk up here when we talk like we're white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like, they're equating their personal experience with being uncomfortable with, like, <laughs> the entire experience of a racial anti-black system. Right.
1: Yeah, and, it's not and the same. Some, honey. And that's
0: your discomfort
1: in that is somehow equal to the anti-blackness I experience. Not nah, dog. No, it's
0: not gonna. It's not how we work around here.
1: And you know, it's so it's so funny whenever I see our children or other black children compared to their peers, and how much more self-determined and resilient, oftentimes in comparison. Oh my gosh! Yes. And it's because of this. Yes. Right? It's because young black kids and non-black people of color have to contend with being racialized every single day.
0: Every single day.
1: And if their parents are having these conversations with them at home, they're conceptualizing it in a way where the young person is learning, like, wait, okay, it's because I'm black that my teacher said my hair texture is like a dog. Mm. So how do I learn to navigate through those feelings and still um develop generative relationships in community with people who are still engaging in unchecked unchecked anti-blackness toward me yeah. because in so many ways our our black kids and non-black people of color they still have to have good working relationships with people who are flagrantly anti-black and mm-hmm. engaging in white supremacy culture so they learn to navigate their differentness um and they learn to navigate the learning edges of other people really early yeah whereas in many cases young white children they don't have anyone really challenging them till after they leave home or at university and college where they're like, suddenly their mind's blown that people have debates and want to argue with them and want to confront their worldviews. And then they have this crisis of
0: identity. Yeah, and then they usually scapegoat that person for being, like, a troublemaker or, like, the person that just calls stuff out too much. So going back to that second point of, like, you've only had so much comfort in your life and then as soon as somebody in college or, like, outside the house Mm -hmm. is like, oh, no, that's really fucked up. And you're like, "Oh." How dare you right. tell me that? <laughs>
1: and this is why, also, you see in digital spaces, white folks favoring uh, racial educators that really have like the, the kid gloves on,
0: yeah, and
1: remind those white groups of white people of their, their deep goodness mm-hmm. and that they're so redeemable, and you know, not everything about you is bad. And I just, I'm always really suspicious of that. There is one thing to be, like, affirming of people's basic humanity and dignity and giving them respect, because they all deserve that. Like, we all deserve that. But there's a level of rigor that has to be engaged in, which is not comfortable. No, absolutely not. And so, when you soften the conversation in service of making sure you don't lose white audience members those white audience members deserve to be lost because they weren't there in the first place to actually do and be about the work yeah because the work is them
0: experiencing discomfort yeah you have to have that discomfort to grow you're not gonna grow if all you're getting is like these positive it's okay right take your time no, nothing to worry about. No, there is some shit to worry about. People no, are people dying. people don't have time. People are dying. So, no, fucking get off of your couch and do something about this. Like, there has to be that urge, that, that urge Not to do urgency, something. Not urgency, but like, but, like this like,
1: call to the yeah, now. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's why I was like in the middle of urgency. I was like, wait, nope. <laughs> Not mm-hmm. that, but like there there has to be that that motivation to push yourself to do that. And, and and that's the key though too is that that has to come from within you. You can't always be expecting, like, this work to come off of the the minds and the hearts and the labor of Black people. Mm-hmm. You have to take up the mantle yourself. Yeah, and I mean, do this. it's
1: just this energy of like, if you came here to free me, you don't need to be here. But if you came to free yourself and 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 together, like we free each other. That's a different conversation. Yeah. And the other thing that is not stated in, like, just explicitly in, in racial justice conversations and racial education spaces is that not all white people will survive this work. Oh,
0: yeah. That should, yeah, you're right. That's never really talked about.
1: Yeah. Everyone assumes that, like, eventually all white people will. No. No. There are white people who will forever be in opposition to this conversation. Yeah. You're right. That's a really good thing. And it's not about a learning edge or, like, not having the cognitive ability. It's because that's their choice, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Let them go over there and, like, languish in their dying generations. And I'm not talking about older people because I know 18-year-olds right now who are, like, real invested in, you know, systems of oppression, Mm -hmm. in, in like, deep, deep anti-blackness. But, like, not everyone comes along with us on this journey, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is.
0: It sucks. And it's
1: not about canceling people and saying, well, you're not orthodox or you don't have the exact analysis that you need to have, but it's just about acknowledging that we need this transformation. We all do. Mm -hmm. In order to create a more just world that we're striving for, we all have to do this work. And there are some folks who are unable and unwilling. And in love, we have to say, here's my boundary. I'm moving forward into this change and transformation. It is a requirement for me. And you can't meet me in this space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they just can't be a part of that part of your community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. But figuring out how to develop emotional, psychological resiliency around these conversations I mean, obviously, one of the first steps is around developing your habits around defensiveness, which we've covered, and figuring out... Which we will cover. Oh, which we will cover. We haven't done defensiveness. Um, but, but yeah, like... Yeah. And, and, and shoring up your internal core. Yeah, do that core work. Which is hard, because so many people have mental health issues mm-hmm. that dysregulate them. So many people have trauma around family and relationships and bonding. So many people have... Um, personhood wounds where just who they are as a person is still really fragile so the idea of people developing resiliency can often feel like a lot but that work isn't different it's not siloed off yeah. You can be doing all of this work in concert with one another and that's actually going to produce more lasting change and transformation in your ideas of self yeah. and how you show up in your community than other attempts. Yeah. And if all else fails, just stop being a punk.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the episode's going to be called. Don't be a punk. <laughs> Don't be a punk. But if you got to um, be a punk, be punk rock. Yeah. What is that voice? <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, so some takeaways we'll bring it back down, we'll take it home here. Um just a reminder that growth happens in discomfort. Really lean into that. Get get comfortable with your discomfort. I see what one you did there. one could say. Um and remember that like your kids are resilient enough to understand these conversations. Yeah, young people need these Man, conversations. Man, they're so resilient. Like, we just do not give them They understand the social scripts already.
1: They do. Just because you're not explicitly stating it doesn't mean that they're not learning about it. And so creating a framework for them to grow and to connect the pieces is an act of service to them.
0: hmm yeah, um, just keep digging in those layers of analysis around your identities, the different intersections of your identities, the ways in which you have privileges, pri- privileges, the ways that you don't, um, and really start to just like grapple with that, understand that, go deeper a little bit. Well stated. Thank you. And also, don't be a punk. Don't don't be a punk. And uh, I think we can end with also that message of just, like, don't take shit so personally. Oh, I'm bleeding. What did you do? I don't know.
1: God. Everyone, I'm dying. You just got so excited about <laughs> discomfort, did. you decided to bleed I didn't it even, How podcast.
0: long have I been bleeding for?
1: No one knows.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, everybody. Um, I hope I'm going to be okay. Yeah, don't take everything so personally. Um, Remember that, like... <laughs> you were born into these systems. Um, That's not necessarily about you. And I think what Jasmine, the message that Jasmine was sending is that the moment that you do realize that that's when you have your shot, you know, that's whenever you have the chance to start changing things. And so really making sure that you, you capitalize upon that knowledge. Um, And I would like to end by saying, you know, like, if you are receiving um, education and motivation or information, from, from black folks around anti-black racism work, um, pay them. <laughs> that could just be you saw an Instagram post about it, and it's okay to pay them. You um, said
1: it's okay.
0: <laughs> don't feel weird about it. Just be like, hey, can I pay you? I learned something don't off, make of it your, weird. off of your labor. I really appreciate it. Here's my um, gratitude around that. So that was just my own I mean, about it. You can call it gratitude, or you can call it ethical obligation. Yeah, well, that's a word for it, too. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm still very concerned about how my arm is bleeding right now. Okay. Um, anyway, so that's the end of this podcast episode. We're going to say goodbye before Mo bleeds out. Yeah, God. Um, if you have any questions, if you want to have the keep the conversation going, please email me at contact at political.org. Or you can go to my DMs on Instagram or Facebook and shoot me a question there or a comment. Um, Let's see, let's see. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Parenting is Political Handles. Um, And goodness, I don't know. That's it. That's all I have to say for the end. I hope that you all enjoyed it. Um, I'm excited that the laptop is back up and running. And we got some new episodes headed your way. All right, y'all. Bye.